Welcome to Walk Through the Bible, Susan Michaels' 12-month journey through the most exciting book on the planet. It will transform your life one page at a time. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes that will ignite your faith and bring your Bible to life. Now, let's join our host, Susan Michael. Welcome to Walk Through the Bible. This is week 15. And we are deep into the story of the highlight of Israel's history, which is the Davidic kingdom. So today we're going to be covering our reading this week, which is found on pages 449 through 475 of the Daily Bible, or the dates of April 9 through 15 uh, in the Daily Bible. I'm actually going to pick up on a little bit of what we read uh, last week because I didn't cover it all then. Um, Our highlights so far, as we've been in 1 Samuel, um, is David has established his throne. Uh, He has been named king first in Hebron, where he was for seven years. And then last week we talked about his capture of uh, Jerusalem. And um, and so today we're going to pick up our story there. And now uh, David is, is king over Israel. And the first thing we notice is he begins to defeat the enemies. He defeats the Philistines. Of course, this is a sign of God's blessings on his people when they are no longer overruled, harassed, even murdered by their enemies, but that they uh, have subdued their enemies and living in peace. And so David begins to usher in that period for the people of Israel. He also recognizes the need um, that uh, to bring the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem and to begin to establish some sort of centralized worship. Remember, during the period of the judges, uh, everybody did as they saw fit. Uh, there wasn't national leadership. There wasn't a national prophet. There, uh, they were sort of scattered, and so I think. David begins to recognize the need to now solidify leadership, and that's not only just militarily, but also spiritually. And so he brings the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem, and it says that he houses it in a tent. Now, it doesn't say specifically that this tent is the tabernacle, the tabernacle that was uh, built in the wilderness and traveled with the Israelites. We don't know uh, the tabernacle has been in Shiloh for over 300 years. But at this point, it seems that David just erects a tent uh, to house the Ark of the Covenant. And then we move into, now we're in 2 Samuel, and in chapter 7, and this is really a significant chapter, where David begins to make plans to build a temple to house the Ark of the Covenant. And God says to him, are you going to build me a house? I don't think so, because I'm going to build you a house, and I'm going to establish your kingdom forever. So I want to read to you from 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, and um, beginning at the beginning of the chapter, uh, it says that the king has settled into his palace, And the Lord has given him rest from all of his enemies all around him. And so he says to Nathan the prophet, he says, Here I am. 
I'm in a house of cedar while the Ark of the Covenant remains in a tent. So I'm going to begin reading here at verse 3. So Nathan replies to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David. This is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I've not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from tending the flock and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. Your own flesh and blood, I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And Nathan reported to, the, to David, all the words of this entire revelation. Now, why is this so significant? So David says to the Lord, I'm going to build you a, a house, a palace, a tabernacle, a temple to put the Ark of the Covenant, which is the presence of God. I'm going to build a house for you to dwell in. And God says, you're going to build me a house? When did I ever say I wanted a house? He said, instead, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you an everlasting dynasty. And I'm going to have your offspring, your son, will build the temple for me. And when he sins, I'm going to punish him. But I will not reject him like I rejected Saul before you. This is an amazing passage. And at this point, we have like a whole third pivot in our biblical story. We read in the whole first quarter of our reading how God made three promises to Abram. And he, he fulfilled the first two promises, at least 
in the natural, at least in part. We're going to find out later when we get to the New Testament that there's actually a greater spiritual fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, but he has fulfilled it. He has given Abraham descendants. He's made him a great nation. He has given those people, those descendants of Abraham, the land of Canaan that he had promised Abraham that he would do. And now we see the beginning of the fulfillment of the third promise, which is that they would be a blessing to every family on earth. And the way he's going to bring about this fulfillment is going to take a while longer. But the first step is that one day he's going to bring a king to reign over the earth. And through that king, every family of the earth is going to be blessed. So let's back up now. Here he is establishing that it's going to be from the lineage of David. He's going to build David an everlasting house. Now, something else he says in here, which is really significant. He says, now I will make your name great. This is in verse nine. I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. Now, that is quite a promise. Here's little David. I mean, he grew up a shepherd. He's now been put as king over this little people on this little piece of land in the midst of a huge earth. And, and God's telling him, you're going to become one of the greatest names on earth. How, how would he do that? But looking back, who doesn't know about King David? Anybody that knows about the Bible, whether they are Christian, whether they are Jewish, whether they are even Muslim, and these three religions take up the bulk of the earth, they know about King David. They know about David. His name has outshone those of the leaders of Assyria. Can you name the leaders of Assyria? Can you name the leaders of Babylon or of Persia? If you're a good student of the Bible, you might know a few names, but how many in the earth can think of those names? But they've heard of King David. So I want to tell you now, you know, I'm always bringing up what the skeptics say and what the archaeologists say, and uh, it's almost laughable because in the past, these biblical skeptics said that King David didn't really exist. He was just a mythological figure in the pages of the Bible, but there was no proof outside of the Bible that this man even existed. And then we had an amazing archaeological find in 1993 up in the city of Dan. Remember how I've told you about Abraham's gate at the ancient city of Laish, which was later became the city of Dan? In that city, they uncovered an ancient stele. And this stele is of the Assyrian king bragging how that he had defeated the king of Israel. He had not defeated David. This was about 80 years after David. He had defeated the king of Israel, known as the house of David. And so here is an extra biblical confirmation, not just that David existed, but that he had founded a dynasty or a dynasty 
that the Assyrian king had actually bragged about defeating. Now, this made the skeptics go running. So then they said, okay, well, maybe he existed, but he was like a Bedouin sheik, you know, or sheik over a tent. I mean, he didn't, there was no evidence that there was infrastructure, that there was building uh, during this reign of David, that it was a strong monarchy. There's no archaeological, archaeological evidence of any of that. And then they uncovered a specific city, um, and they realized then it's called Kerbet Kaifa. And in that city, they saw well-established, built up. It proved there was infrastructure, there was communication, there was a network of cities securing the kingdom, and it put all of those skeptics really, I would hope, to silence but I doubt it. Um, anyway, so let me tell you just a rundown of some things that archaeology has proven to us now about David. First, that David did exist as a king, the head of a 10th century BCE state. So that means that 10 centuries, a thousand years before Christ, there was a King David over a monarchy, that he founded a dynasty well-known to his neighbors and uh, maybe even mentioned as far south as Egypt. He embellished his capital in Jerusalem, um, known as the Citadel, which they are they're excavating now, the Palace of David in the City of David. And they know that um, Hiram may very well have built that palace because they have found this Phoenician head of a column right there where David's uh, palace was. They have uh, seen that his reign saw an expanding population, which means a time of peace and prosperity and an increasing number of urban developments in a certain settlement pattern. So it was to secure borders and to secure expanding borders of his kingdom. Um, we also know that he was successful in his wars against the Philistines because archaeology shows that the Philistine sites weakened and lessened during this time, while the Jewish or Judaic sites of archaeology were growing and were stronger. So that means he was ruling over the Philistines and they were weakening. So we see all of this now just from archaeology, which is supporting our biblical narrative. So I just want to bring this up to say, do not base your faith on archaeology or even on science. You know, the um, there are big gaps that still need to be explained. And all it takes is one new discovery, and it may realign everything they've been telling you for decades. And that's why I don't base my faith in them. I respect them. I uh, appreciate science. I appreciate archaeology. But when they don't quite line up with the biblical text, I'm just going to wait. Because I believe one day they'll find that missing piece and they're going to go, oops, 
it does agree. <laughs> and um, so we'll just wait for that day. So now the story of David and this moment that I just read to you out of 2 Samuel 7, why is it so significant? Because God has made a promise here to David, what we call the Davidic covenant. It is just as important as the Abrahamic covenant, the promises God made to Abraham, the Mosaic covenant, the promises he made to the people of Israel through this covenant that was cut in the Sinai uh, through Moses. And now we have a new covenant, the Davidic covenant. And it says here that God is going to establish an everlasting covenant of dynasty through David. And this is going to lead to what, what we call the Messianic kingdom, because that is the everlasting kingdom. No kingdom on earth is truly everlasting. And in fact, when you look at the story, it looks like the kingdom of David was demolished or cut down to the root. And the prophet Isaiah speaks to this. We will touch on this when we get to the prophet Isaiah. He talks about the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. The, the, the root of, of David that has been cut down to the ground. And it looks like there's no hope. There's no future. And then the prophet Isaiah says, but a shoot is going to come from the root. So from below the ground, the root is still there. And one day a shoot is going to come and it's going to continue on that Davidic dynasty. And we see that of course, in the birth and the life and the ministry of Jesus and in the coming kingdom where uh, Jesus the Messiah is our king. So in Amos 9, another prophecy says that there would come a time when after the diaspora, after the Jews have been scattered, that they're going to be returned and God is going to raise up the tabernacle of David and it's going to include what Amos called, quote, the Gentiles called after my name. That's you and me. So we are a part of this kingdom of David that's going to be resurrected um, and is being resurrected uh, as, as, as we are witnessing a physical resurrection that is going to house that spiritual resurrection. Um, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is told in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 33, that Jesus, this baby that she's going to give birth to, will be given the throne of David and will reign over his kingdom, over the house of Israel forever. And it says there will be no end to his kingdom. This is a direct fulfillment of God's promise here to David in 2 Samuel. In Jeremiah 33, verses 14 to 18, it says that as long as God's covenant with Noah is in place, that this kingdom, this covenant is in place. So what does that mean? In uh, Jeremiah 33, he refers to the fixed patterns of the heaven and the earth. As long as the heaven and the earth remain, and are in their patterns that God 
initiated there in his covenant with Noah, says, so will my people uh, continue to be a people before me. So, um, and the Davidic covenant will remain. So I'm just throwing out to you some references. You can look them up and read them for yourself. This is a pivotal moment in our scripture. Almost everything that we've read up to this point, you could say, this is the climax. This is when God says, I put my king over my people and his house will never end. Now, just a, another quick word about the kingdom of David. David is a strong military king. He actually is used by God uh, but to um, defeat the enemies of the people of Israel and bring a period of peace. So he defends his kingdom and he expands it through war. And that's why later his son after him, Solomon, doesn't have to execute these kinds of wars. So David has in a way done it. He is the military king. Later, David says that the Lord told him he was not the one to build the temple because he had blood on his hands. We don't actually have a record in the Bible of when God told David that, but David was a military leader, and he did have much blood on his hands. Um, and then we have, of course, uh, our next story, which is um, a story of outright blood on David's hands. And so a combination of these things mean that David was not to build the temple, whereas Solomon was a king of peace and he was allowed to build the temple. So now uh, in our reading this week, though, we do read about uh, immediate opposition to this amazing promise God has made to David. And I don't know if you've ever had this happen in your life or seen it where after an amazing spiritual high comes a huge blow, and you could say, the deepest spiritual low you've ever experienced. And this is because there is such a thing as the powers of spiritual darkness in the world, and they like to come along and destroy, attempt to destroy what God is doing. Well, they can't do it. They can never destroy what God is doing, but they will hit you where it hurts. And then it's up to the strong and those that can rally their faith to get back up and to keep going. And if you will, you will see the fulfillment of God's promises and his goodness in your life. And this is exactly what we see here in the story of David. From this absolute high of God has made these amazing promises to David. And it says that, after David hears all of this from the prophet Nathan, he goes in before the Lord and he says, God, who am I? I mean, and what is my family that you are making such amazing promises to little old me? Well, sure enough, then it all gets tested. And you could say, it looks like David has failed the test. And this is, he goes outside of his palace and he looks, now the city of David, as I've explained to you, it is on a hill. It's a long, narrow hill like a peninsula. And it's a very narrow top to the hill. 
So whereas David's palace was probably built right up here on the very top of the hill, the other houses and the other buildings in the city of David are kind of terraced. They kind of go down. They go down the peninsula and they go down on the sides of the peninsula to the walls. And so from the king's palace, he can look down out over the entire little city of David, the little city of Jerusalem. And so he's looking down and there on a rooftop below him, he sees this beautiful woman named Bathsheba. And it says that she is bathing. Now, we don't know if this is actual bathing or if it was a ritual purification bath, because later it does say that she was being purified from her monthly period. But he looks down and he sees this gorgeous woman as she is having this, this bath, and he lusts after her. And so he, he sends for her, and they sin. And then he finds out she's pregnant, so he's got to get rid of the husband. And the husband is a Hittite. He's not even an Israelite, but he's serving in David's army, and he is as loyal as they come. And so you know the story, you read it, how that David manipulates the war so that Uriah the Hittite is killed in battle. And then he is able to take Bathsheba as his wife. Well, this displeases the Lord greatly, as you can imagine. So you can say at this point, David has hit an all-time spiritual low. He has completely sinned before the Lord. He has committed adultery. He has committed murder. And now he has taken the woman in as his wife. And so the Lord tells him, I'm going to take the life of the baby. Now, uh, David, I want to point out here, David falls on his face in repentance before God. And this is the big difference between King David and King Saul. Saul never really fell on his face prostrate before the Lord in repentance with a genuine heart. But David does. And the Lord lets David um, fast and pray and to really pour out his heart and to hit rock bottom. And then he fulfills the execution of his judgment and the young son does die. It's a very, very sad story. And some of you may be saying, how could God allow that? Why wouldn't God save the life of the son? Why wouldn't a loving, forgiving God save the life of the son? And all I can say is that he executed judgment exactly what he had promised his people and exactly what he had promised David would be the price for his sin. And so we like to see God's love and his forgiveness as meaning that he'll never execute judgment. But that's not real love. And um, he's a faithful God, and he has set in place certain spiritual laws that when we sin, there are consequences to our sin. And yes, we can run to him for forgiveness and we can be restored. But it doesn't mean that the consequences of our sin are always done away with. Sometimes we still have to suffer the consequences of the sin. Sometimes God miraculously will deliver us. But other times we do still suffer the consequences 
while we also enjoy complete restoration in our relationship to God and in the calling of God on our life, and we can begin to move forward again. So uh, then we have the second blow to David's, to this great promise that God has given David. And this blow is in the form of the rebellion of Absalom, his son, who tries to steal the kingdom from him. And Absalom, who seems to be an absolutely physically gorgeous man, must have had great charisma. I wonder if he wasn't a bit of a narcissist, the kind that walks into the room and gets everybody's attention and everybody's ooing and awing over him, love being around him because of his charisma. And he draws the people to him. And David begins to see that it's over. And Absalom sets himself up as a rival king. And we have this very, very interesting story. I don't want you to miss this story where David leaves Jerusalem in tears, because I, I want you to get this. In 2 Samuel 15, verses 30 through 37, we see David, and it says he leaves his palace, and it says he goes down the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives, and he turns and he's weeping because he's having to leave Jerusalem. He's weeping because he's being rejected as king over Jerusalem. And he's having to abandon the people and the city and his kingdom. And it all happens there on the Mount of Olives. Well, what happens some 1,000 years later as Jesus is going through the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, over to Bethany, then back to the Mount of Olives. And during that last week of his life, from the Mount of Olives, he looks out over the city of Jerusalem and he weeps. He's being rejected from the very city, the very people that he is to be king over. And he says to them, you won't see me again until you say, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, you might be saying, well, what does that mean? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is taken from Psalm 118. We're going to talk about this psalm in a couple of weeks in much more detail. But Psalm 118 has a section of what the people of Israel would call out to their king, and they would say, Hosanna, Hosanna, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. And what does it mean? Hosanna means Hoshienu, save us, save us. Because in this time in history, the people looked to their king to protect them, to save them from their enemies, to keep them safe and to keep them prosperous. They looked to the king for their very life. And so they're saying, save us, O king, Hoshiano, which we pronounce Hosanna, Hosanna. And then they would say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, meaning bless you, O king, for you are coming in the name of the Lord. You are the anointed one of our God to save us. This is all found in Psalm 118. And this is what Jesus pronounced over the city of David. And so I just, our closing point here that I want to make is how that we in the 21st century Christian Western church 
are very Greek and Roman in our thought, and we're very linear. I am. I'm as linear as you can get. Very, very logical. Very step upon step, always moving forward in a certain direction. That line upon line, precept upon precept, I'm getting it. And a linear approach to life leaves things behind in life. I'm very guilty of this. Our God is much more what we would call a Middle Eastern mindset. He's very cyclical or cyclical, however you want to pronounce it. He doesn't leave anybody behind. And so this is why in the scriptures we see these patterns repeating because God is cyclical. And so he doesn't just go on and leave something. He comes back and he redeems it. So he made a promise to David that you have an everlasting kingdom. But he also said that, you know, to his people that if you sin, you're going to be kicked out of the land. There's going to be judgment. And judgment made it look like David's kingdom was cut down to the ground. But God wasn't about to abandon those promises to David, just like he's not going to abandon his promises to Abraham or his promises to the Jewish people through Moses and the Sinai covenant or his promise to Noah. He doesn't abandon these things. He pulls them in as he's moving forward. And then he comes back and he pulls them in as he's moving forward. And so God here is working in types and shadows. And 1,000 years before Jesus stood on the Mount of Olives and wept over Jerusalem, King David, his father, his great, 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 I don't know how many greats, grandfather, who established the kingdom that he's going to sit on the throne of, did the same thing. Now, my friends, you cannot make this stuff up. This is what makes the Bible so exciting. So I think that does it for this week. I want to, okay, one last point I want to make. God is also the most amazing teacher, and he didn't just give us a book that lines out everything like I would in a very logical way, a chapter on this, a chapter on that, a chapter on this. No, 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 no. He laid it out for us in real life. The people of Israel played out in real life, in real time, in real space, spiritual principles that are still at play today and that you and I live out in our lives spiritually. Is that not the most amazing thing? And this is why our study of the Bible, we have layers and layers of understanding, but we see God working through his people in a very physical way, what we're living out spiritually, but he's not through working it out physically. There we have a future to play out on earth, and it will be played out both physically and spiritually. This is the God that we serve. He doesn't leave anybody behind, and he hasn't left his people Israel behind. Instead, in our days, he's regathering them to the land, and he is beginning to reestablish and set up the throne of David there in the ancient city 
of Jerusalem. We have so much that we could be talking about. We'll talk about a little bit more of this in the next couple of weeks as we continue our story of David. In the meantime, I want to remind you, we are offering a resource. If you go down into the show notes below, you can get a link to this. It's a beautiful DVD produced by our great friends at the Christian Broadcasting Network called Written in Stone, The House of David. This little documentary is going to show you these various archaeological finds and how everything I talked about today, how they support the biblical story about David, his existence, what the Bible says he did. It's going to show you these finds. It's going to explain it in much more detail than I'm able to in such a short broadcast here. So I really recommend it's only $9.99. Get your copy of this DVD. And I think you're going to want to share it with your family members, with your grandchildren, with your children, uh, with your brothers and sisters. Um, it's just so exciting how that the Bible is being proven in our days. And so get the House of David. I want to ask you also, please subscribe to the channel that you you like to listen or watch this on so that... Um, you get notifications and we know how many are tuning in and listening. Also, I want to encourage you to be sure, make sure you're getting our uh, weekly emails and uh, that you have our reading guide that we use to do the walk through the Bible. All that's available on the outofzionshow.com webpage. Go there. You can sign up for everything. Walk through the Bible with us. We are beginning uh, here the second quarter of our walk through the Bible. It's an exciting, exciting section of the Bible. So don't miss out. Stay with us and be back here next week for our walk through the Bible. And until then, may the Lord bless each of you. God bless.